0: Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. We hope The Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And The Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash Ringer.
1: I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk
2: now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he is the basis of the Mesa Verde cowboy. It's Andy Greenwald. Buddy, you know, people
1: might not know this. I don't know how we're going to share this, but we are are back on vid. Our images are being captured right now. And as you were doing your intro, which was stellar as always, thank you for bringing it, even in reduced circumstances. It never occurred to me that I could be the next guy who's giving an interview while a child comes in freaking and dancing in the background. I mean, that is in play.
2: Here's the thing, Andy.
1: Me too, but I don't have kids. <laughs> That's right. You just leave your door open.
2: I'm just like, come on, guys. There's, oh.
1: there's a trail of Reese's Pieces running through the east side of Los Angeles culminating in Chris's front door.
2: Don't say that. It's cool, man. <laughs> Everything's legal now. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. It's The Watch Podcast. Um, we are still cranking. I just want to say that today, uh, we are going to be covering the most recent episode of Better Call Saul. So Wexler versus Goodman. That was on Monday night's episode. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about the most recent episode of Patch. That was also on Monday night after wrestling on the USA Network. And we have a really fun interview that we recorded a few, I guess almost a month ago now, probably, right? Uh, with it, Katie yeah. Crutchfield from Waxahachie. And uh, they have a new album uh, coming out. She's putting out a new album tomorrow called St. Cloud. That is just absolutely stellar. And, um, you know, there's some stuff in the interview where I think we're talking about like her going on tour and stuff like that. That probably will sound, you know, not particularly. It won't make any sense now. But uh, for the most part, I thought the interview made sense and um, talked a lot about eating barbecue, but also a lot about making this record. And it's, it's a phenomenal record.
1: It's one of the best records of the year. And Katie is one of our favorite interviewer, interviews to do. It's her second time on the podcast. We love talking to her. And I mean, I haven't revisited the interview since we did it. But, you know, I, I think you and I both had a little conversation about should when should we post this? How should we post this? Because it honestly feels like an artifact from a different yeah. world. Um, because we were joking a lot and having a great time and talking about her upcoming live shows. Honestly, I feel like the album is so good and I really think it's the kind of album that would give people comfort in their lives regardless of the state of the world. So we're excited to share it. We're excited to support Katie and hopefully you guys enjoy listening to her as much as we enjoy talking to her. So that's the end of the show.
2: Yeah, uh, so we're going to have that interview. We also, we opened up the mailbag and we got some great questions so far. And I think rather than doing a mailbag episode, what Andy and I will do is sprinkle them in uh, throughout like different episodes. So basically rather than doing like a full here's 100 questions or here's 25 questions or whatever. We're going to just drop a couple of questions in. So the mailbag is open. Feel free to hit us up about uh, anything from servicey questions about what you should be watching to more existential questions. We'll try to answer everything in, uh, that we can. But before we get into everything, Andy, how are you doing? Oh,
1: I'm great. I thought one of the questions that we might get is like, what are our personal regimens for washing our hands after picking up an Amazon package? <laughs> um,
2: How are you doing with that?
1: You know, I, I I have sort of a mixed media strategy. Like, there's definitely, I, I've done the like, I think where I've settled, and I wonder if other people are like this too, is I like to keep my hands in a state of near constant cleanliness now, which is something that we probably always should have been doing. And well, lesson learned. Sorry, humanity <laughs> about that. But what I kind of do is exist like they're clean because they are. And then when I decide... To plunge them into a vat of the world, I go all in, right? So if I opened the door, I am now officially like Spanish Inquisition style unclean.
2: Right, right.
1: I can do anything I want. I right. can pick up Amazon packages. I can run my hand along the railings of uh, the steps outside of my house. I, c- I, could, I could do anything because at that point, they are no longer part of my body. They Peel are just. Stickers off of stop signs. Whatever. They are yeah. now the paddles that the the master to Hades, Charon, uses across the river Styx. That is essentially what these are. They are completely separate and apart from my human body.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you get, you're pretty good at not um, not putting your hands on your face then?
1: Um, I think people watching this podcast, you've already failed since I mean, asking I, me that I've, question. But I have
2: not really left yeah. the house today, so I've also scrubbed my hands multiple times.
1: I can be. I think I've got a pretty nice little OCD switch that I can turn on and off, which I'm grateful for. Yeah. I was thinking about the last time that I was sort of out in the world officially, and it was to do that final audio mix for the finale of Briar Patch. And I was thinking about that night. And in retrospect, I did not, not only did I not take off my coat. I did not lean back in a chair for three and a half hours.
2: <laughs> when you say left the house officially, you make it sound like you're doing extra ju- judicial work.
1: <laughs> no, I just mean like took a Off car somewhere. Like Black I've been in, bag stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, like you know, sometimes I go out and I paint the office. Sometimes I paint houses. Um, do you remember that show that was on last year, The Irishman? Yeah, it was a it was a Netflix show. You um, you were was, able to
2: finish that first season, were you?
1: No, but I'm looking forward to getting back into it. But there was something in the pilot I remember that reminded me of that. There was a guy. You see, I think he was up to no good. I'm not sure, but I feel like he had he had a bunch of different irons in the fire.
2: Maybe they should remake the Irishman for uh, for Quibi.
1: Now you're talking. First of all, the major problem with that with that wasn't the length; it was literally the width. I I, I would have preferred it in vertical mode. Yeah, for my phone. <laughs> yeah, because this guy, what was his name? The director, Scorsese. I just feel like he fills that. There's just too much stuff.
2: Yeah, it's like, I can't look too far to my left or right. The, I don't have that the kind the of visual feel. Vision. Just like, yeah. let's
1: stay focused, especially at a time like this.
2: We're just hanging on for Quibi, man.
1: Is this podcast just now an elaborate twice-weekly subtweet of Sean Fennessy? I feel terrible about that.
2: No, Sean's doing great. Sean's doing great. Sean's, <laughs> Sean's pumping t- out incredible content on the big picture, man.
1: Sean texted me last night and said, we're doing great watching a lot of horror films. <laughs> so, <laughs> seems good. Seems fine. <laughs> how are how are you doing? You I, I, really, I want to ask you what um, I imagine most of our listeners want to ask you, which is, "How's that PS4 doing?"
2: It's still in the box, and I'm not talking quietly because I'm incredible. trying to obscure this from my wife. I it's it's still in the box. I just haven't had the moment where, like, now I have the day in front of me. The weird thing about being stuck at home is that, as I'm sure you know, now that you are um, a, a licensed and accredited teacher, yes. Um, just because you're stuck at home doesn't mean you don't have stuff to do. And mm-hmm. like the kind of stuff that's always like 10, 20 minutes away, a half an hour away. I have not really found myself relaxing, so to speak. Uh, no. It has not been a staycation. So I have not cracked the box yet. Um, I, w- I will soon, though. Probably this weekend.
1: And then, will we be doing shows then, next then week? or The
2: podcast will be over.
1: That we I a, will
2: become a professional FIFA player.
1: We had a good run. <laughs> We had a good run. I'm very impressed by that. I'm impressed by your ability to do that. Anything else during your relatively small amounts of uh, you time? Anything else gone across your transom that's worth talking about?
2: Well, so here's the thing. I wanted to get into a question that we got from one of our listeners. This one came from Greg Pace on Twitter. And and Greg asked, essentially, if we had um, any pop culture regrets. Now, I think before, Mm. in previous episodes, you and I had talked about... um, pop culture blind spots maybe. Like for me, I think that uh, I have a blind spot for uh, the Fast m- movies, like Fast Furious movies because I, for whatever reason, even though there were plenty of stupid action movies that I like and plenty of movies featuring The Rock or Vin Diesel that I like, I've never really gotten into those movies specifically and I'm kind of like deaf to their the the sounds going off around them. But I think that the question about regret is interesting because what Greg was sort of asking was, was there something that you wished you would experience the first time around when it was sort of popping off that right. you now feel like whether it's the overwhelming amount of discourse around the topic or maybe like the context of the world has sort of changed? And now, which it obviously has, and maybe it's not appropriate to get into something uh, that you have like this regret for it. I have a couple of things, but I think you could especially tie it into something this seems to happen a little bit for me around these true crime things, like with Tiger King, which is the number one show on Netflix right now and is is like really like any any pop culture website you go to has Tiger King content. People are casting Tiger King adaptations on Twitter. And um, you know, I I just I finished that this weekend and I was kinda I, I feel like in about a week, if you would, if I if I'd seen all this Tiger King stuff, I don't know that I would have been like, it's time to fire up Tiger King and see what people are talking about. So I wanted to see if you had anything similar where you have regrets, because I've got a couple, but let's start with you. Yeah, I think
1: there are, I think it's a great question, and it's an interesting time to consider it. I would say the things that I kind of wish I had enjoyed more in the moment include um, global travel, um, socializing with groups of more than my family. Um yeah,
2: ambient physical contact. It,
1: those were things that I, you know, in retrospect, probably should have availed myself more. High of. fives? <laughs> uh definitely a lot of more high fives um no so i think that longtime listeners of this podcast as well as people who used to read me when i was writing stuff know that i have a lot of blind spots um that i'm not particularly upset about one is as you said like i've never seen a fast and the furious movie this has never particularly bothered me i feel super good about my level of engagement with that franchise and awareness right. of it but I would put things into two categories, just purely from, and I I bet you're going to have a couple that I'm going to wish I could have piggybacked on, but I'll put things in two categories. One is, and this is definitely related to my tenure as the TV critic at Grandland, which was basically 2011 to 2015, and I was writing about TV a little bit for Vulture before that. There are a couple shows that are absolutely, um, absolutely, without question, Rushmore or Hall of Fame shows for a lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of people who whose taste otherwise dovetails quite nicely with mine. And I just miss them. And I miss them because I wasn't paying as close attention at the time. I wasn't as voracious in my appetites at the time. And these are shows that are also kind of tweeners because they weren't necessarily like The Sopranos, which I was a few years behind on and then caught up before it ended. These are shows that really feel like they're from a different era in terms of the volume that they produced. And specifically, I'm thinking of shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer,
0: Uh, Veronica Mars,
1: Battlestar Galactica. These are three shows I've watched episodes of, I think, all three. Yes, I have. In my life, I've seen episodes of all three, but never with the completism of a true fan. And so I feel regretful that I wasn't able to be part of the fandom in any real way at the time because the other part of it now is, and I wonder if other people feel this as well, it just doesn't feel doable. Both because, obviously, I've, I'm, you know, as you mentioned, I am a teacher now, and, you know, Chris, not all heroes wear capes, but also just because, you know, uh, greatness now, especially now, you know, could be four seasons of 10 episodes each, whereas these shows came from an era of, you know, considerably more episodes per season uh, with some clunkers that go along with it. And you know, I just can't imagine. I know that you guys are doing at the ringer, you're doing a, a new wire rewatch, which is an mm-hmm. incredibly exciting podcast. Yeah, Van um, Lathan
2: and Jamel Hill are gonna do that.
1: That's so cool. And I would love to to do that one day. And even that feels pretty unwieldy, to be honest. But you know, being engaging with something the way one could have on the ground level, that that's something that I regret. The second half of it is I don't feel regretful about, I just feel it's a blind spot. And that's something like cover your hat. Chris is wearing a binge mode hat. Cover it while I say this. Apologies to Mal and Jason. I have never engaged in any Harry Potter media. I never read a book. I never seen any of the movies. Have not gone to the wizarding world over at the temporarily shuttered Universal Studios For sure. nearby. Um, but that's because I was saving it. Because that's something weird. I mean, there's two things. At the time when those books came out, I was like, that's something I can choose to miss because maybe one day I'll have children. And then... <laughs> spoiler alert i did have children and now yeah. i can pretend that i always intended to share it for the first time with them and that's something we're actually going to get into this year
2: that's my um, take on uh, the exorcist
1: you're waiting to have it you're waiting to have a daughter
2: <laughs> no i know what you mean that's, that's actually wise. pretty sweet that you're you're holding on you're waiting for your, your kids to be old enough to read harry potter I
1: mean, I mean it's a little self-serving too because that it allowed me i mean i, I think people who listen to the podcast can probably relate to this too I think Harry Potter in a way was the first major cultural phenomenon that I gave myself the freedom to opt out of because as someone, you know, we were the same way, like gobbling up all new media, new records and reading entertainment weekly and working for magazines. Like we kind of wanted to be in the mix. We wanted to know what people were talking about. Right. And it was pretty freeing, even at a time with much less competition to be able to be like, "I'm gonna sit a couple plays out here.
2: Sure. yeah. no they, you know the, the the point you make about Buffy and Battlestar and shows like that is really interesting because those were obviously I remember going to get the DVDs of Battlestar seasons to catch up with it. I think I got caught up with it about a season or two before it finished. But that was also really cool because it had like those side movies that they did, like the little mini-series that that they did. It just didn't feel like there was that much competition for your eyes back then. So you could Mm -hmm. kind of be like, I'm really into this. Every night, me and my significant other are going to watch two episodes. Sometimes on a weekend, we might crush four. Like, And I'm just going to kind of make my, my way through it. And the, uh, the enormity of the project was sometimes even an incentive. You know, if you knew that you had four or five seasons of something, that could be kind of fun rather than, you know what? If I'm being honest, am I really going to watch 50 episodes of this show? Probably not. So should I even start it? You know what I mean? And I think that that... I'm kind of curious to know about people's uh, re-watching projects or going back through shows that they haven't seen to catch up. Um, You know, I I think another thing that's really taken over that whole genre of watching TV is the TV as wallpaper revival with shows like The Office and Friends being on Netflix on kind of a constant Mm -hmm. loop rather than I'm going to watch Buffy, you know, and and maybe not every episode of Buffy is masterpiece theater, but there's a lot of really good episodes there. And it'll just be like kind of what I do for a while.
1: I do have a lot of fondness and nostalgia for catching up when it didn't feel as breathless. Because, you know, for example, Sopranos, I think I, basically, so my now wife and I lived outside of New York for a year. And during that year, we had a lot of Netflix envelopes coming to us. For sure. And that allowed us the opportunity to, I think we were about three or four seasons behind on The Sopranos, or three seasons maybe, and then burned through the DVDs, caught up. It was great. And similarly, you... Chris deserve a lot of credit. You were a season one adopter of The Wire. Mm-hmm. And I didn't catch up until I think after the second season had aired or something like that again through those DVDs. And it was thrilling. But I also, and, I, and I, but interestingly, looking back, I can't tell if I'm nostalgic for a time in my life when I had time to do that at all or if I'm nostalgic for a time when I didn't feel like I was, you know, still losing by catching up because there were 17 other things it would have been competing for my eyeballs at that given moment
2: yeah if I had one pop culture regret I well for one thing and I think I've talked about this before but I hope a lot of people are just like unsubscribe from the pod for me saying that it's watching The Sopranos I've watched probably like a dozen 15 episodes of the show I'm pretty familiar with the overall beats I obviously know how it ends I feel like I know a lot of like the show through the increasing memification of the show But I never watched it from front to back. And now I've always just kind of been like, I don't know why I have this trepidation for doing it, but I think part of it, I do have a lot of regret for not being part of at least one of the initial waves of watching it. I'm sure it would be really rewarding, but it's one of those things that, it's such a strange feeling to feel like you, phantom, have watched a show when you haven't watched it.
1: Chris, the thing is, is that, for Tony, there's family, but there's also family. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, it's it's the it's the Italian mob yeah. in New Jersey. So he's yeah. torn a little bit between the two worlds.
2: The other thing that I have a real pop culture regret for is not uh, more fully investing in rave culture. Wow. Because I remember really distinctly when I first moved to New York, I did this piece for Time Out in New York, and it was an interview with uh, James Murphy, who would, who would go on to start LCD Sound System. And this guy named Tim Goldsworthy, who is an engineer and producer, who they, they worked together on this record label. And they were also producing a producing team called DFA. Very important thing in Andy and I's life. And um, I remember going to talk to them. I think it was at like Murphy's apartment somewhere in Manhattan or Brooklyn. I can't remember. And the way that they talked about taking ecstasy and listening to re- going to dance parties, I was just like, yes. that sounds pretty good, guys. And, you know, maybe one day I will imbibe in that. But I'm a journalist, you know, and there's important work to be done when it comes to reviewing your work and others. And uh, thank you, sir. And now, in retrospect, it turns out I didn't really need the brain cells.
1: It's like, whoa, 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 fellows. I will enjoy my solitary Pabst Blue Ribbon this evening in the company of a few of my fellow soldiers on the Good Ship magazine.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I... I I did, I mean, like like most people our age, like I did have my fun, but that kind of full-on investment into like, you and I are not guys who went and saw Orbital, you know? No. No, we never went to see Underworld, if you know what I'm saying.
1: uh, No, we didn't. I mean, we went to see Underworld, but we didn't go to see Underworld. Yeah, you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, You probably interviewed them the same place I did. They had that office like by Plant Studios in like West 13th or West 14th Street. Yeah. and I had a similar thing, and this is not to diverge too much into meet me in the bathroom core, but you know, I, our, our friend Lizzie wrote that book. we had her on the podcast to talk about it. And it's funny, like I'm, I'm quoted a bunch in the book, even though I still believe that my role in that era was some combination of uh, uh, zelig and castaway, right? Because like you and I, we were there. We went to a lot of these concerts, we knew some of the people, but even when something was ha- I can't I guess what I'm saying is I could feel regret that we weren't even though we were I guess we're a couple years younger than Tim and 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 James, but like we weren't seeking out raves. We weren't realizing that it was okay to like punk and like dance music and then go out and do it. Yeah. It's that even then when what they brought when they brought their knowledge to New York, I can't say we were doing it either. Like my main memory of going to the Miss Shapes party was the one night when I went and they were setting up, and it wasn't time to go yet. And then I went with another friend to a different party or bar for a bunch of hours, and then remembered to go back to Miss Shapes where everyone was leaving, and they were like, Madonna just DJed. I was like, oh, (laughs) yeah, okay. So I guess that has helped me feel less regretful about missing that because I missed it with both eyes wide open.
2: Yeah, yeah. I just mean like in retrospect, it just sounds like we could have gone out even more. It's hard to imagine
1: because I don't remember. Maybe this is through the lens of someone who has been inside for two straight weeks, but I don't remember. Officially. Staying
2: in. Oh, you know, no. I was I, My wife and I often will talk about like, what did we eat for dinner from the year 2002 yes. to 2011? And the answer was pizza.
1: Yes. At, at weird
2: times. Yeah. Pizza at like 1130 p.m.
1: Well, or pizza, you'd get the like 630 slice on the way to the bar. And yeah. then there would be the, the other slice after the bar.
2: You remember going to bars?
1: Bars seemed fun. But I, I haven't gone to bars in five years. <laughs> or true. wait, how, old's my ch- how old are my children? I'll date it. I'll you, date it to that. You're
2: looking off screen like you have some assistant to tell you that. I, I'm sorry, I'm getting it. Oh, it's been quite some time. Oh, I see.
1: You know, one thing, and, and maybe people also doing the wise thing and being safe at home would relate to, is one of my favorite traditions of youth Of is exactly this time of year Because right now it's officially spring, but a couple days into it, um, which probably means for our friends on the East Coast that there is either it's just happened or it's probably about to happen. People have different names for it. I believe we used to call it Tank Top Day. But there's the one day when it's like 59 degrees, maybe going up to 60 or 61 degrees. Oh, yeah. And people just like break
2: out. It's just... It's just gun show time.
1: It's it's like the age of Aquarius number in hair on yeah. St. Mark's Place. I used and to just suddenly... like
2: roll out of classic and, <laughs> in Boston when that would happen. Like w- with the t-shirt sleeves rolled up like I was Emilio Estevez <laughs> in in Outsiders or something. Like,
1: Well, yeah. I-, I was remembering... The, my favorite thing about that, though, is I remember and in my mind. I was texting. But I don't know if we were texting at this time in our we lives. We probably weren't. But in my mind, I'm texting... Your now wife saying, because she was working at Spin mm-hmm. and it was to communicate to everyone at Spin, we're going to go to the bar that has the outside garden today because it's the, 56 degrees. Because it's 56 degrees with only a light piercing <laughs> wind. Yeah. And that would be the whole point of the day. And then there would be the pizza before and after. And boy, we're, we're slipping. Okay. Do we have any questions more about the present or should we slide into shows that we've been watching?
2: Let's do Briar Patch. Uh, not Briar Patch. Let's do Briar Patch second. Let's do Solve first. Wow. That was well, which one do you want to do? You want to do Briar savaged. Patch? Because we have a couple of <laughs> questions from listeners about Briar Patch. No, let's 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 save
1: those. Let's do you want to talk a little salt. Cause I don't have a ton to say about Saul this week.
2: I mean, how many times do you can you just say this shows on another level that uh, Ray Seahorn deserves whatever statues you want to give her? This was more of a early season salt to me. You know, there was a lot of uh clerical gymnastic work going on. And, but, hijinks. and hijinks. Um I guess I had a question for you, as somebody watching the show. Yeah, what do you think Jimmy's long-term game with Howard is?
1: Um, I don't know. I would say I don't know if there is one, but usually there is one on the show. That's sort of the show is generally about the long game. I don't know. I mean, that was the one that that was the one piece of the episode that I was the least thrilled with. Um, not because it wasn't funny. Um, not because it wasn't played well by Patrick Fabian and Ed Begley Jr., more that it felt, and I guess this connects, obviously, to what we're learning about Jimmy, which is this vicious streak, the resentment, you know, and the fact that it is not what I think he believes it to be, which is like a sniper rifle that he can deploy, but actually a howitzer that takes a lot of collateral damage. But that it was just so, you know, he's just trying to humiliate a guy. He's just trying to destroy someone for his own, is it revenge? Like, Mike and Gus are up to. I'm not sure. I don't know if there's an end game, and maybe yeah. that's that. In and of itself, is the takeaway.
2: You know, it's it's interesting. I've, I I think because it especially has become much more evident as like you spend more time indoors, and and if people are indoors with a significant other, like you're basically confronted with one person's behavior all the time. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about like the interpersonal dynamic between jimmy and kim and how stubborn they both are in a lot of ways um but that ultimately kim's stubbornness comes from a place of goodness i think of wanting to do good in the world whereas jimmy's is wanting to get over on people yes like they both want to win but i think kim wants to play the right game whereas jimmy it's is almost indifferent to the game he's playing. He just wants the victory.
1: Yeah, I think she wants to be good, you know? And I think that the desire to be to be good, I mean, that is is in, in a really, I think, brilliant and subtle way. That's in the cold open, where we see the flashback of young Kim and the relationship with her mother. And there's so much packed into that one interaction, one of which is the feeling of moral superiority that is baked into her uh-huh. for very good reason, right? But she sees her mother and is like, I'm going to prove a point that my virtue here outweighs my own discomfort,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? That I'm going to walk home rather than reward you for your bad parenting, reward you for your bad choices, and of course, quite obviously, put put both of their lives at risk. And I just thought that that really... Flashbacks are so hard. You know, I, I've said before, I'm against them. I didn't put any in Briar Patch. And one of the reasons I think they're so hard is because they're often very didactic. And I thought what was so great about this one was that it communicated a ton of information in a very uh, light handed manner and also set up something that played off of our expectations in a really good way. My wife is not in on the show. She's not really watching the show, but she was on the couch when I started watching it. And her reaction to the scene was she was riveted to it because she, like many, People, I assume, thought that the last thing we would hear in the sequence would be the car getting into a massive accident. Right. That the mother right. that that this moment was the moment. Right. And I think that's often the trouble with flashbacks is that, yeah, like, it's like, we, let me
2: show you the psychic wound here. Right. Let
1: me show you the moment Bruce Wayne's parents were shot again and again right. because it can all be traced down to this one moment. And I love the restraint that it wasn't that. That maybe there were other moments, but this. Still it both so it was both gripping on a like what's gonna happen in this moment level, but also really informative in and Yeah, and also just like
2: the idea of Kim being somebody who doesn't necessarily give up on a person who disappoints her. You know? Necessarily. Um, That's much more necessarily. That's much more interesting to me than like Kim is like this because her mom got in a car accident. Although we don't really know what happens to Kim's mom.
1: So let's I mean, basically fast forward to the end here, like what did you make of The Last Lines? I mean, uh, I, 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 let's get <laughs> I loved it, man. I married. mean,
2: I I thought, I, I know that there was some discussion. I mean, you can't really, you can't, I don't, I don't really feel like this show is even in the realm where people should be like, I'm so mad that Kim did this, or I'm so mad that Jimmy did this. I and mean, this is just like happening, like, let it happen. This is drama. I think that those two impulses that Kim has about breaking up or getting married can often be confused for one another and it was interesting to mm-hmm. see them articulated that way. And um yeah, it's somebody who is confronting she doesn't want to be on that that same loop with Jimmy of getting let down by him that they're that to to be a part of his life, she either needs to be completely cut off from him and I thought it was such a great line. That Kim says, and we can basically like remember this fondly. Well, what's the line that she says? Like, either we end this now and like appreciate the good times that we had, mm-hmm. or we get married. Now, what Kim wants from that marriage, I, I think, is up for debate. What do you What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I think that what it speaks to is this the something that we saw in that um, cold open, which is there's a there's a stubbornness. Right? That she can fix this. She can be in all places at all times. We've seen that. It's established in the in the character over multiple seasons. Remember when she was doing Mesa Verde, doing all the work, and got in that horrific car accident because she thought she could do all of it. Mm-hmm. And she thinks that she is strong. And she is strong, but she thinks she is strong to the point of a kind of mania and a kind of um, blindness to the rest of the world. This seems very much like a, a car crash waiting to happen. Right, yeah. that, that she can will this into something better than what it is, even after having seen the depths uh of who she's engaged with. You know, I the one thing that I haven't seen that I'm curious about, and, and maybe this is a good thing because it even as I'm about to say it, it sounds a little bit pat. Like, is she trying to fix him in any way? Does she think that she can control
2: him? Because clearly she can't no, I, I think she's st- steering it's into not the that. skid. I think she's steering into the skid. Right. Like life did. life with you is going to come with like basically, like when Jimmy's like, you know, I gave you plausible deniability. I think she's saying I don't want that. I basically th- want to be in on the con all the time.
1: Do you think uh, this whole scenario gave uh, Kevin and Rich and Paige a plausible out from attending the wedding? <laughs> like, can they politely say thanks but no thanks?
2: I don't know. If I were, if I got an invite to that wedding, I would go just to see what the videography was. Oh, it's going to be rich with the green
1: screen, perhaps. Yeah. I, I, I did want to say, is the last thing about this episode, um, one of the really interesting things for me, and this this maybe segues into talking about Briar Patch 7 a little bit, was just one of the really interesting things for me was watching the combination of artistry and magic trick that is acting in a performance over a period of time. And watching Reyes Seahorn be Kim, Kim Wexler in this moment what was so thrilling about it was that every single gesture, every look, every intonation was, quote unquote, was true. Mm-hmm. Not just emotionally true, but true to the character as has been established by her over a long period of time. And, you know, we haven't interviewed her, but I, I would imagine if we ever had the opportunity that she would probably speak about having so much to draw from so that it felt natural. You know, they've she's never been in that kind of scene before on the show. Yeah, She's never been on that kind of emotional... Uh, that really intense emotional ping pong match like she had with Jimmy in this episode. But of course it was no, her exactly face, as her Kim face when
2: he's breaking out his DVD yep. in that meeting is like priceless. I can't I couldn't couldn't believe that scene.
1: And and I was, you know, one of the things that I learned from talking to the actors on my show is the real difference they find, you know, between movies and TV is that in movies, you know, if it's a two-hour movie, even if you're a big character, you might only work five days. You might work 10 days. Yeah. I don't know. You
2: might be on screen for like nine minutes.
1: You don't get many reps and you certainly don't get an arc and you don't get to revisit and maybe try again with similar emotional terrain. And so now, you know, I've seen every episode and every scene so many, many, many times from when we rehearsed it, if we rehearsed it, to shooting it, to whatever. I was thinking specifically there's a moment in episode three or four when I realize now that Rosario, who's always amazing, was still finding... The character, you know, and, there, and there's a reaction that I'm, that I think about as being something that she had in her toolbox already, you know, and it works. Yeah. And then I think about what's still to come on the show and the way she played other moments, even more complicated moments later, and realize just how connected they are to the time spent. And for all the times we, we give the writers a better call, Saul, credit for their long play and taking advantage of, you know, all the rope that their situation, their success and their network gave them, the actors must be relishing it too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and what, what really impresses me is the way in which, you know, when we were talking about Curb last week or earlier this week, I think we. I was like, oh, I could watch like if Curb was 35 episodes this year, I would, if Saul was like 30 episodes this year, I would be so excited. I have no issues with like the tempo of this season. But what's incredible is that even when there's a moment where somebody like Nacho doesn't really do anything, he has one scene in this episode that we're talking about. And the way in which he talks to Mike, I was like, it's worth like five episodes of other shows.
1: It, it's great. And it's because it's, it's not just that scene. It's everything cumulatively built to that scene. Also thrilling to see them shoot that scene in the San Bonifacio town slaughterhouse. I don't know if you noticed that. Let's, let's switch
2: over to that. That looked but, very uh, familiar for one yes. thing. So is that oh the warehouse where they shoot shows there?
1: That's the rail yards. Yeah. The old abandoned rail yards in, in downtown Albuquerque. That is a phenomenal location for many, 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 many productions. And, uh, I was having like intense flashbacks to the smell of what I believe to be like per- glass particulate <laughs> that is shot through that place. Yeah, uh, We spent a lot of time there as you'll see in the next few episodes.
2: So I wanted to ask you a couple of things about Butterscotch, uh, the, the most recent episode of Briar Patch. One was you had something on your Instagram this week that I, I wanted to, to to flag for you where you were basically talking about a scene in the episode, I believe, and you were like, this is the this is the scene that like so far exceeded what i i had in yeah. mind can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you were talking about there and give them some context
1: yeah absolutely um i was talking specifically about the last scene of the episode and the last scene of the episode even for people and by the way you know when we've had guests to explain production design and you know cinematography my hope is that even if you aren't watching the show even if you aren't cut up that there's some value here so i can try and speak you know more generally but The episode ends with a very essentially quiet and intense confrontation between rosario and jay ferguson's characters allegra and jake and it was something that was really important to me because to try and pull off because a lot of the episodes end with really big swings whether it's drones flying off into the night or literally like the power going out you know coming from as someone who really likes and admires episodic television, I want to leave people excited to watch more. And, you know, that's also the kind of thing that if if and when the show is on a streaming platform, hopefully it'll get people to watch the next episode. But I wanted to sort of launch people into the next episode in a big way. I really wanted to do something different. And we really wanted to do something that was quieter and more character-based. But the thing is, how do you earn that? And so the challenge was, you know, figuring out an episode that kind of maybe had three other endings Uh, one of which is the death of a really wonderful character, which I hated doing, I regret doing. That was from the book, uh, although the context has changed a little bit. Um, There's a great scene between Cyrus and Allegra that kind of gives away a huge piece of information about her background that also could have been an ending. But I wanted to bring it back to these two characters because Jake is essentially absent from much of episode seven, reeling from what happened in episode six. And I kind of just wanted it to be about them and to literally end on a question. The episode ends with Jake saying, just us. And it was something that uh, he's been asking for and going through ridiculous machinations to achieve because all he wants is his best friend back. All he wants is this person who's basically the love of his life back on his side. And she arrives saying, okay, uh-huh. it's just us. I've got nothing left. And he's presenting him with everything he's ever wanted. And he's blown back like the guy on the cassette case from when we were growing up. Like, right. I've never seen this person. I was carrying around like we all do the sort of idealized version of the person and like, what? I don't know if I can handle this. And right. his whole thing is bluster. And so basically, this is a long way of saying, it all came down to performance, you know, and and, and direction. And Samira Radzi, was a wonderful person and a really talented director, got the scene, just nailed the scene. And I can't say enough about it. And Zach Galler lit it beautifully. Everyone came to play. But it ends up being about the actor's Understanding why this matters emotionally and kind of delivering on it, and I I was joking to Jay and Rosario that it, this scene was like a masterclass in eye landing,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the thing it's the kind of thing that we don't really think about, but now I think about it all the time, which is that first of all, if you watch actors in a scene, the best ones they're not blinking. It, it's it's insane, but somehow they are so focused that they don't blink very often when they're in the middle of a scene. And you can watch an episode of TV and see that I'm right. Yeah. But two, where they put their eyes matters. And it matters both for their performance, but it really matters for the editor and for the, um, for the audience. Because eyes landing like on the other person's eyes feels like a cut. It feels like a natural rhythm. It gives a scene that natural rhythm. And so there's a moment at the end of this when Jay does this big, very Jay Ferguson gesture and stretches and leans back. And then his eyes just one, two, three, fall. And cuts Rosario and her eyes are elsewhere because she's sort of dealing with the enormity of it all. And her eyes go one, two, three, up.
2: In a way, yeah. And there's that and the- moment in between the two of them where so much is transferred between the two of them because it feels like Spivey... Realizes the emotional importance of the moment and Pick realizes that she can't count on him at all. Like that, that was my read of the moment, yes. you know. And she, that she, there is basically like right when they're supposed to meet midway, she turns away because she realizes she can't count on the person she's looking at.
1: Yeah, that there maybe they are now together. But what does that even mean to be together? Right. Is she is right. she together with him the way someone thrown overboard with an anvil tied around her ankle is together with the anvil? Right. Um, <laughs> it remains it remains to be seen. But but the other thing that I would say is and and you know uh, this is the kind of thing that I would say to people who are writing scripts or interested in writing scripts too. I think about this scene as a benchmark for me and, and and let me first say again, this episode was written by Aisha Porter Christie who is a wonderful writer and a wonderful person, an enormous talent and just got the voices, got the world. But, you know, in terms of my own growth as a writer, even if it was a rewriter or someone who was sort of shaping the shape of the episode to the degree that I, that I did, so much of the first part of the season was still written in a speculative like, are they really going to let me make this even though we've made one pilot since? And... I'm sure a lot of writers understand this feeling. There was a lot of, sh- I, f- I feel, and certainly we cut some of it away in edit, but there was a lot of showing the work. There was a lot of, you know, saying it and then saying it again and then saying it in a clever way. Right. And one of the things working with brilliant directors and cinematographers and actors taught me is that, you know, yeah, this really is a visual medium. And sometimes you just have to p- place it back,
2: Yeah, like basically let the story tell itself.
1: And let them do it and yeah. you gotta you gotta trust that they're gonna do it and that's really scary as a you know person doing this for the first time as a writer wants to control the way it feels and everything and this is one of those moments and there's there's you know there's more there's there's one in nine and then a, a, a final scene in ten that means more to me than any other where i just sort of i pinch myself because they they did it you know they right. brought it and, there was and that's really gratifying
2: there was one question uh, from our mailbag that I wanted to throw your way today, which comes from a guy named Dave Wheelrout. So Dave is crushing some Madden right now on uh, self-social distancing. And he asked, well, what was the Briarpatch writer's room like? And specifically, did certain people write for specific characters more than others, a la Mike Schur writing for Jim Halpert on The Office? Mostly curious about the collaborat- collaboration levels and how much influence you had as a showrunner. Be well.
1: Be well, my brother. What a great question. Um, Chris, you visited the writer's room, so you saw the particular dynamics at play.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think when I was there, I went there uh, one day with Shay Serrano. We, we dropped by. Um, and the thing that really blew me away was the intricacy and level of attention to detail about plotting stuff that I think has to be, it has to go into the cake, even if most of the viewers are only going to care about the icing. You know, so understanding how um, a character gets from one side of the town to another if they heretofore have not had a car, something like that, (laughs) you know, or this is an alley. What's at the end of the alley? And how does this person get out of the alley? That kind of stuff where you're just like, oh, yeah, when I watched Born Identity, they just drive the car down the alley.
1: Should should we pull the lid off it? Uh, As we determined in episode six. We just won't show you how Allegra got back to the brewery. But I think that that's
2: fine. I think that that's fine. Um, But yeah, That that was like a
1: week of discussion. I
2: was curious, though, with Dave's question here. Did anybody Mm -hmm. handle the character writing of any particular character?
1: Um, Like with everything in a writer's room, the answer is smeary. It's yes and no. You know, I I brought the characters and the generalities of the plot and the way that they talk to the show. You know, the pilot was already written. But what's so thrilling when you get an exciting and diverse and interesting group of people together like you do in a writer's room, people gravitate towards what interests them. I mean, it's only natural that they would. And so Haley Harris, who wrote episode five, came to the show with a real passion for cop shows and procedurals, and particularly for Kim Dickens, one of her favorite actors. So she really, really, really fought for Tech. And, and I think that that's kind of a distinction worth saying too. It's not necessarily that she wrote Raytech; We didn't say, take the scene. It's that she fought for her and fought for her point of view and for her storyline, you know, when appropriate and sometimes even when not. I think Raina McClendon, who wrote Six, had an affinity for Allegra. Um, Wayne Ning, who wrote Episode Four, was always there reminding us of Felicity Mm -hmm. and her emotional import to the story and and the way she mattered. Eva Anderson, who's our co-EP, who was on our podcast a few weeks ago, she, you know, she was more senior. Um, She... Lucretia is so much her like she just understood what we wa- what I what we wanted the character to be and just gave her her voice so much of the the lines that establish her are, are her you know I don't think Aisha would mind me saying that that Lucretia saying in 107 um, I'm 135 pounds of grade A American honey uh, and I <laughs> that's that's pure Eva uh, and I can hear it when she says it you know the, people just, Eve also like weirdly fell in love with Colder. Like that, people just have an affinity for certain characters. My favorite example of this being uh, Brian Brown, whose episode will air in two weeks, episode nine, cared more than anything about Burgers and Burgers, the fictional burger place that we saw in episode six (laughs) and fought for it, fought for a very intense backstory for it uh, that didn't quite make it into the show, but has made it into the Zootown podcast, which he wrote. And so I was joking with him today that it is the most him thing ever. That not only did he refuse to give up on a pitch in the room, he re- held on to it for weeks
2: and got and it into months, a pod, and then
1: put it into a podcast. So you know the answer is with everything in a writer's room, it's yes and no. But I think it's a great question, and I and I think that um, you couldn't make a show without that multitude of voices, honestly, because you're trying, especially a show with as many characters as as this one.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great that's a great answer. Um, well, we can wrap it up there. Episode eight of Briar Patch comes on Monday night. Can I say yes?
1: Obviously, I love I love my show, but eight and nine are very very special and dear to my heart. And uh, I think that people will really really enjoy them. I, I'm really excited for people to watch to watch eight. Um, especially, it, it it in some ways was the hardest, and then in conception, and then once we got to making it, in, in many ways the most smooth and fun that any of us had
2: I'm so excited to see those two episodes too from based on what little I've seen in the editing room and so we'll do those we'll do eight next week obviously so we have a couple of guests coming so we have obviously our our interview with Katie Crutchfield just as a re- reminder Waxahachie's album is out on Friday so definitely check that out and two we did that about a month ago so obviously, you know, it was a pretty casual conversation with no knowledge of what was happening in the world. So also, just that weirdly,
1: the three of us were high fiving the whole time.
2: Yeah, it was a lot of a lot of like elaborate, like college basketball team level high fives. I thought
1: it was strange at like the midway point when you started licking your hand and then grooming me the way a cat cleans itself. <laughs> but again, in retrospect, it's like what how did we know better? You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was a different time.
2: I know uh and then next week we have some really exciting guests um Andrea Riseborough from zero 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 is gonna join us that's my show that's that's my show dog <laughs> if you've been watching zero 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 and you're kind of like damn this is a lot it is it is quickly <laughs> rising to top of the charts for me it is like probably my the, the thing I am most impressed by this year and the run like five six Episodes five and six of this show, which include uh, a detour to Senegal and an absolutely batshit episode set in Monterey, are un- like, un- indescribable how good they are. So I'm please. so
1: jealous of this show. I'm so jealous of Mauricio who wrote the show because you know I pitched a detour to Senegal midway through prior <laughs> right. patch season one. It was
2: supposed to be like um, like shot like down. Steve, Steve Coogan's the trip. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, the trip to Dakar. I yeah. by the way. Make that movie. I'm gonna let's go back to when we were talking about things we wish existed.
2: Yeah, Steve Coogan in, in, in Senegal.
1: Fun story there is a new The Trip movie coming during this lockdown. Did you see that? The Trip to I Greece? Did. I did. That's on my list. I can't get
2: enough of those. So, uh, Andrew Riceboro and also Chris Mundy, who's the executive producer of Ozark, Ozark season three drops Friday. It is very, very good. So, all my Zark heads come out and play.
1: Are you gonna grill him the way you've grilled me? You know is he gonna have a friendlier showrunner hot seat than I've had or or, or unfriendlier?
2: I feel like I've been playing i'm I'm like Maria Baratomo with a with a <laughs> Steve with, Mnuchin here. what how do you, what's her last name? Bartiromo? Romo. Bart- the money was she like no Aaron Burnett was the money honey, right?
1: <laughs> listen. listen. <laughs> I, I feel like we're taking a detour to Senegal right now. I'm not sure. Uh, but she was the one who was like very popular on CNBC in its early days. And now is and, on Fox
2: Biz, right?
1: And now, and now mostly does what I was saying that you did to me jokingly about licking your hand and then grooming someone to the <laughs> yes. president yes. Uh, as her full-time occupation.
2: That's right. Um, so yeah, we'll have a couple interviews next week. I highly recommend people check out Ozark over the weekend. And we will come back on Monday. And we'll, we'll have a bunch of stuff to talk about. Devs?
1: I, honestly? I'm here. I love talking about stuff. Once, okay. once we finish the math problems of the day, I am all yours, buddy. <laughs>
2: all right, brother. Up next is our interview with Katie Crutchfield from Waxahachie. Their new album, St. Cloud, is out tomorrow.
1: Okay, Chris and I couldn't be happier to be joined by one of our favorite artists, Katie Crutchfield of Waxahachie, whose new record, which is incredible, St. Cloud, is released on March 27th on Merge Records. Katie, welcome back.
0: Thank you, guys, for having me back.
1: We're so happy to have you back. We love this record. We love talking to you. But already, I feel like we've cheated our listeners because we've essentially been podcasting for about 20 minutes now. That's right. (laughs) Primarily on the topic of water.
0: Yes. Who knew? I I almost like whipped out my phone and just hit record. This is just too good to keep away from the audience.
1: It was gold. Because I think, you know, Chris and I are sitting here, obviously, with a lot of like you know, considered market-tested questions about the music business, Mm -hmm. about your new record. What was going through your mind when you were making this record? Yeah, all (laughs) the stuff (laughs) that you love. The musicians love to talk about when they're promoting a record. And then you blow our minds with very, very fixed opinions about water, salinity, um, hydration theories. Yeah, yeah. And some, frankly, radical thoughts about big water.
0: I Yeah, it's— Which we're not going to say on this podcast. (laughs) I walked in here with an XL— Essentia, which is a powerful statement. And so. it's no free ads.
2: You're just, you're an evangelist, but you're not a paid endorser. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I, I believe in it. Yeah. I just, what can And to be
1: clear, that was the extent of your retinue. That was, <laughs> that's who you rolled in here with.
0: There's that's no one else. Just me and my Essentia, yeah.
2: Yeah. You and your water. <laughs> I feel is, like I've backed myself into a corner because there's just like, there's no good water stance to really take. Essentia <laughs> sounds cool, but like if you have like highfalutin taste, you're just like, why, why are you paying that much for water? And then, Anything beneath a certain level, you're like, you know you're essentially drinking pure sodium. Yes. Just like a packet of sweetener.
0: Exactly. And it's
2: just, it's. I'm in a tough spot, <laughs> I personally
1: just, and politically. I just feel very, very comfortable having a musician interview that is primarily about proper hydration. <laughs> I feel like this is the speed I'm at yes. in my life, and I think that's fantastic.
0: Honestly, I've been like, you know, just really doing a lot of press lately, and so talking about anything else is fun for me. I mean, but I also am down to talk about the record, too. Which we will. Talk about it it all, yeah. But
1: I also have to say, what's great about this is, I'm sure during this press tour, because this has been part of the story of the record, was your sobriety. Mm -hmm. um, Instead of saying something that you've taken away from your drinking life, We're just talking about what's been added.
0: Exactly. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new world. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's
1: not reactive. It's just, it's positive. It's positive. It's all positive. You're putting stuff into the world, putting stuff into your, this is great. Yes. Okay. We can return to water. Sure. But for now, I do want to talk about um, some of the the more physical real world stuff that led to this record, specifically when we spoke to you last um, for your absolutely incredible previous record. Incredible in a completely different way, which is so exciting, uh, Out of the Storm. You had just, I think, or you were about to pack up and leave our hometown of Philadelphia.
0: Um, I think I was about to. You about to. I have since done that. And,
1: and, and moved again.
0: And moved again. Uh, yeah, so, I, I guess so. I guess that, it's been a while since I've been here. I do, yeah. I, I, it was so funny. I was thinking coming in here, I was like, I honestly barely remember my own name right now, so I really <laughs> don't remember what we talked about, what we didn't talk about. Right. So you guys might have to remind me, but. That's fine. But yeah, I, di- I guess right around the time we last spoke, I was getting ready to leave Philadelphia.
1: Okay. And at that point, then you moved to Alabama.
0: I moved to back. Alabama. Yeah.
1: But now, <laughs> buckle up, listeners. <laughs> now you're in Kansas City.
0: I'm in Kansas City. And what so, a crazy uh, Well, I want to talk about was. this, yeah.
1: Because Philadelphia to Kansas City is well-trod territory. You're following the athletics, I exactly. believe. Exactly, yeah, Andy uh, Reid, yeah, exactly. Andy well, Andy well that's the other one. So okay. the question is, are you doing the athletics tour and you will next move to the Bay Area? <laughs> or are you doing Andy Reid where you will just— Stay put and do the best work of your career. <laughs> she's
2: just following Super Bowl championships. I'm she's following, she's a, ring gets, I'm Foles, a ring chaser. I'm a ring chaser. Then she goes to Kansas City in a couple of years she'll be like with Joe Burrow in Ohio. Like, I've been living in Ohio. What are you talking about? I know. Honestly,
0: like if you follow me, you will know who is gonna win the Super Bowl. That is really <laughs> what, kind what we're of revealing amazing. here. I know. Would you ever predicted that about yourself? Um never in a million years. I mean, I'm from like pretty magical football. Territory just yes. from being from Alabama and, you know, like watching The Crimson Tide for my entire my, I mean, the year that my sister, if we're going to really dig in here, the we're year that it. my sister moved to Tuscaloosa was the year that Nick Saban also moved to Tuscaloosa. Oh, wow. coincidence?
2: So they've been I l- think linked not. together I think since then in history. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Um, that really, would be cool, though,
2: because, like, you know how Ken Burns documentaries always start with, like, in 1997, <laughs> Allison Crutchfield moved to Tuscaloosa. And so did a football mind. from Like, it's like he always has those, like, notes. Like, yeah, the, Karl exactly. Marx was writing during the Civil War and
1: stuff. Butterfly flapping its wings in Tuscaloosa <laughs> right, leads exactly. to something happening in Kansas City. Something
0: happened. And now, look at us now. It's, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, uh, I'd like to say, part kismet, part coincidental. But, you know. <laughs> I'll take a little credit. Yeah, I think
2: you deserve it. (laughs) So how long have you been in Kansas City for?
0: Um, Almost two years, I guess. My move there, it was sort of a soft move. I moved to Alabama and had, like, big dreams of really planting roots there and buying a house and just kind of getting back to the south. And that was cool. and actually led to a lot of what happened with St. Cloud and kind of the direction that I took. But it just wasn't quite right. I just never fully was ready to... Go all the way back. Mm -hmm. Just anyone who goes, I mean, you know, anyone who leaves their hometown, Mm -hmm. when you go back, there's beautiful things about it and it's nostalgic and all this stuff, but it's also um, all the reasons that you left are still there. Sure. A lot of the time. So um, I started dating someone who lived in Kansas City. He was actually, when we got together, living in LA, and then he moved back to his hometown, which is Kansas City. And I just sort of slowly found myself there for longer stretches of time. And then eventually I just, you know, live there.
2: <laughs> Does Kansas City remind you of any other places that you've lived before? Like, or like, is like Kansas City in 2020, like Philly in 19. 19- ninety-nine or <laughs> twenty ten or whatever. Like is there is it does it is it like a fun place to live or it's
0: like totally a fun place to live. And I think I had gotten just from traveling so constantly for a million years, I was so jaded about every city. Yeah. I just was like, show me a city that I'm gonna like. Like yeah. I dare you. Nobody can because I just I I yeah, I was so <laughs> negative about it and so sure that I just wasn't gonna fall in love with the city the way that I did with New York and Philly and um and i weirdly just found myself i i i went started going to kansas city a lot and was just like almost rejecting that the idea that i could love it you know just like oh i'm i know myself well enough to know i just eventually uh-huh. am going to feel disconnected mm-hmm. from the city and yeah it, that just didn't happen i ended up actually loving it and it is um it is really cool it's nice. great yeah
1: is your love primarily barbecue based or barbecue adjacent
0: barbecue adjacent but okay. a, but also i mean yeah, I can't even tell. I mean, I'm from Alabama. I yeah. love barbecue. Yeah. It's a but it's, serious...
1: But a different style in Kansas City. It's
0: a different style, and dare I say, this is controversial, Whoa. but dare I say, it's my favorite style. Oh, Kansas wow. Kansas City is my favorite barbecue. Wow. Is
2: taste. Kansas Actually, City the mustard-based one? Or the that's better? Carolina. That's Carolina.
0: Yeah.
1: So, what? Boy, we're, this is this is great. All I ever <laughs> want to talk about on this podcast is hydration and food, and we found our dream guest. Perfect. What distinguishes Kansas City barbecue? What makes it better in your mind?
0: Well, there's some... The way that the way that they do ribs is different than in mm-hmm. Birmingham, but the main thing is burnt ends, which is ends. that's it's the special Kansas City thing I, that I
1: I've eaten that Chris. Chris I don't think at me. I've ever Arthur ever Bryant's. Burnt ends. Yeah. I oh, yeah. went to once, yeah.
0: and it's funny actually. In this for this in the same way that I feel about Birmingham barbecue, like the, my favorite places in Birmingham are Hole in the Walls, but they're mm-hmm kind of newer. They're not the old school places. I do like the old school places too, but it's exactly the same in Kansas City. There's a couple spots that are newer and they are doing barbecue wow. really well. Incredible. So yeah.
1: food aside, and I think that is <laughs> the main driver to live anywhere, honestly. But I, I am curious, what does it mean for a touring musician such as yourself to live anywhere at this point? Because you are, as you said, you know, you your life is on a, I mean, I, hopefully at this point it feels natural to you, but from the outside, it, it's a unnatural cycle of being planted for a minute or a year or two obviously up to you and your creative process and then you're suddenly in rooms with jokers like us talking about it and then touring around the country playing rooms seeing people who you know but see every x number of months or years so how do you determine where that quiet place is going to be and what does it mean to you in the larger context of your
0: creative process it's interesting because that i i feel like those were big questions i really had to ask yeah. myself in the last couple of years um well, I, I mean, to just go back to the beginning of the question, I feel like the cycle of it all is so natural for me because I've just been—I haven't not done that since mm-hmm. I was a teenager. So right. I'm just so used to all the traveling. And in fact, the slowing down part is the part that I always struggle with. And I feel like a lot of musicians do, just that when you have to actually, like, wake up in the morning and have a normal day at your house, it can get really dark and yeah. really confusing and really just like— like uh restless. And in the past, it's been really hard for me. And I knew kind of toward the end of the Out in the Storm cycle, that's like right when I got sober. And I knew that I wanted to really take my time with the next record and the direction that I wanted to go and and basically do like a very big overhaul kind of like reinvention sort of thing. So I... I I just sort of had to, like, stare directly at that quiet time. I knew I was going to have to figure that out in order to make a record, in order to, like, really just, like, regroup and take care of myself. And so, yeah, it's almost like—I feel like Kansas City ended up working out so well for me because I didn't make any—it's sort. almost like I couldn't look at it. I just was like, oh, suddenly I live in Kansas City. Like, I'm not going to, like, make that statement. I'm not going to, like, make any big to-do about it. I'm just— Suddenly, I exist here. And then over the last... By the time I tour again in April, it will have been 14 months since the last time I toured, which is by far the longest I've ever gone um, since I was probably 16 years old. And honestly, like, I really feel like I did the work to get excited about the quiet time. Like, now I'm I'm ready to go on tour, but I also really appreciate the quiet
1: time. I'm really fascinated by the way you're talking about the quiet time because I think that for those of us outside of your world and outside of music and songwriters especially when we're talking about it or when we used to write about it there's always an element of like magical magic thinking to it right where it's like and it's a little bit actually even in the bio of, of the new record that Merge gave us where fire is the beautiful song that you've released already from it you know it, it, you describe it coming to the melody coming to you and so i think from the outside that's songwriting hey, a, a perfect melody <laughs> descends from the heavens yeah. into you into the perfect vessel that was waiting for it but i love hearing about the other half of it, which was embracing the quiet time, thinking about how you're spending it, focusing, and also, as you said, wanting to do something different. So what does that – what did form did that actually take when you decided you wanted to do something different and then being both open to whatever tumbled out of the heavens but also <laughs> rigorous about pursuing it?
0: Yeah. So it's funny. Um, I mean – it a melody tumbling out of the heavens is exactly how it works, but that only happens about 0.0001% of the (laughs) time. And the rest of the time is just wide open spaces where you're just waiting for that to kind of happen. But yeah, so the first few months of it was almost like a little bit forced of like me sort of telling myself, this is how you, like, remember, this is how we write songs. Like we shut everybody else out and just get in there and don't worry about it and it'll happen and mm-hmm. then of course it didn't and i was sort of struggling with writer's block and had a lot of creative energy but just not wasn't able to put it down in any way that felt correct and then i had this tour with my friends and this band bonnie dune they were going to open for me and then play as my backing band and i had, i had known well a they are like my favorite current band they're so good and B, I I had kind of known like, I want this next record to have more of like a softer kind of Americana leaning sort of sound to it. Super different than out in the storm, like, you know, out in the storm so much atmosphere and and so like raw and loud. And I want this to feel really trimmed and like clear and just nothing happening that doesn't absolutely need to be there, like a lot of space. But I didn't know how to do that. And I'd had no of I have none of the right players or people kind of put in place. So I had this tour planned. I've been just banging my head against the wall trying to write these songs and figure out how to get this sound. This magical like inexplicable sound that I, you know, didn't know how to make happen. So we we start rehearsing for that tour and it's like the mo- uh, like you know, at the moment we start playing together and I hear my old song sort of interpreted by them, I'm like, I found it. This is the sound. And just as soon as I started to, like, get them to, like, try some of these new songs I was working on, and it just was so perfect. And really kind of the moment that happened was when I—it really inspired me and and led me to kind of um, write quickly and have clarity over what the sound was going to be. And you know, we started demoing together a bunch. And um, so, yeah, it was like kind of the first half was frustrating and me just like praying that something good would happen. And then we started jamming together. And from that point on, it all just kind of fell into place.
2: As you decide for yourself that you want to come up with a different sound for, for the music that you make, does it change what you're listening to?
0: yeah or you know it might be the opposite where so like you're, changing, sh- you're listening I'm, to
2: and you switch to your, yeah,
0: exactly. yeah. I think that it's kind of more that, um or just they they affect each other, sure, but yeah. um, but yeah, I think i was I was really shifting around what was influencing me and that that really led to the sound. I so think. what
2: kind of stuff? I mean, like, I know that I've read in some of other interviews you've done and, like, obviously just, like, listening to the record, you can feel, like, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road there <sighs> and you can feel, like, Wrecking Ball there. But, like, were there records that you were going back to a lot before this kind of started to roll?
0: Definitely. I think the things, the three big things that were influencing me and then I ended up kind of leaning more into the, like, Lucinda stuff was Lucinda Car Wheels. And the newest, but still not new, Fiona Apple album. Oh, yeah. Um, Either Wheel. That, just lyrically was really inspiring me, and um, SZA control yeah. that record. Yeah. Um, those three things, like I, I feel like I really wanted to have a vocal moment on the record. I wanted to feel mm. like my, I wanted everyone to kind of feel like my voice had had graduated beyond maybe like this sort of quiet indie rock thing that I was doing because I was really feeling like that was one strength that I was gaining um so I was really practicing to SZA I was just like trying to like follow her melodies and <laughs> yeah. and just to as an exercise um but those lyrics on that record are unbelievable and same with Fiona and so that all of that stuff was really inspiring me and then when the when we got in the studio and the sound was really feeling like mm-hmm. Lucinda-esque Amy Lou, Gillian Welsh yeah. all that stuff um Yeah, I really leaned into that.
1: It's kind of, it was exciting to listen to, and it's absolutely, I mean, your voice has never sounded better. It's really phenomenal on this record. Growing up, you know, whether it was in in our era or your era, like with punk rock, like the volume and brashness feels like the most exciting and most confident and bold and brave thing you can do You get up Mm -hmm. on stage. As I guess as we get older and we listen to different music or we just get older internally, um, or externally, <laughs> depending. Depends in on my water. case. yeah. Depends on what water you put in your body. Um, there's nothing, I think, more confident sounding than quiet and space. Yeah. And mastering that space and choosing how to fill it. You yeah. You know, it, 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 there's, there's this confidence that comes with that that is just all over this record. And it's interesting that you connected to Out of the Storm, which I think is one of the best rock records in the last few years. Thank you. And it's a rock record.
0: Uh, um,
1: totally. And it's not so much that this is a refutation of it. It's just a different step on this, uh, on your career journey, obviously, but also in your, I would imagine, in the confidence that you feel using your instrument on record.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's two sides of the same coin, really. I mean, without In the Storm, I feel like it was, um, I was just trying to communicate an anger and sort of a super urgent emotional moment. Mm -hmm. And I did that by making the guitars loud, by making it have like I said, like a lot of atmosphere, a lot of stuff going on, and mm-hmm. for it to feel sort of claustrophobic and just super urgent. That was kind of the intent behind that. And with this album, I just feel like, you know, it it does kind of have that same sort of confidence, but there's an ease to it. And I really think that the clarity and having the vocals right up front mm-hmm. um, was just how I how it felt like the most natural to communicate that.
1: There's this, I mean, there's a swagger to both <laughs> records, I think. Um, but yeah, there's something, there's something very different in the voice in this record. And yeah. and do you ascribe that to where you've gone in the last few years? Not physically, because we've covered that, um, <laughs> and it worked out for Andy Reid. It did. <laughs> but but just in terms of where you are in your life, making this record.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, I think, you know, the last few years, I've done I've done a lot of work on myself. I feel like I've done a lot of the. The stuff that people do when they, you know, go through such a big change, like getting Sober, like we were talking about, and I feel, you know, I've let go of a lot of the stuff that was really, you know, weighing on me during the Out in the Storm era, and I just wanted that to—I feel like I— Maybe didn't intentionally like think that that would affect Saint Cloud so much, but just listening, a being them, and I feel like mm-hmm. when you put out a new record and you're talking about it, it's very natural to a b it mm-hmm. with yeah, the last right. thing that it's you made. Like, yeah, yeah um, it's a pivot.
1: It's, it's a, a, or, exactly or, or, yeah. or at the least it's in a conversation.
2: Sure, with it's right, in before. a
0: com- exactly, and so I feel like as I kind of. Am doing that just through naturally through talking about all of this stuff. That's the big thing that I'm feeling. It's like, oh, it really does feel like there's an ease to this album. It feels like a weight has been lifted, and that's that's cool. I want to. Um, it's a a lot of stuff's been coming up. Like I I want it to feel that way, and I want people to hear the album and think like, oh, this is this is a cool record, and it's not completely tortured. Like I think that. That's something that I've been really thinking about. Mm -hmm. Is like the concept of the tortured artist and like the sort of all the unhealthy shit that comes with that, you know. And and I just have been finding it really empowering to be like, okay, I feel like this is my best record, and I'm really psyched on it. And I was in like the healthiest place I've ever been when I made it. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that trope of like, oh, you know, this person is so tortured and so dark and so sad. And granted, amazing art. It's undisputed that amazing art has been made when people are in that headspace. But I just have—I found it cool to sort of maybe prove to myself that you don't have to be that dark to make a good record.
2: Has that kind of awareness changed—not to go back to, like, what you're listening to, but has it changed the way you feel about certain artists', like, trajectories or, like, biographies or discographies? Because, like, I always get really into, like— I was just talking about this the other day with like how astonished I am at how like Nick Cave just gets up every day and writes songs and like puts a record out every 15 months or 18 months and like no matter how dark it is or what's going on in his life but he obviously was somebody who came from such like a tempestuous early days and is really like a working artist now and I almost have like this a ton of respect for that yeah. because of like the discipline it must take to just kind of like grind away at being Nick Cave every day and still find something new to say and a new sound to use and a new set of like musicians to work with like that. Does it change how you look at some of your favorite artists at all?
0: I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that that is the most inspiring thing the world's made. Just somebody who has been at it for so long, mm-hmm. for so many decades, has found something inspiring to say in each sort of era of his life. I think that that, that gives me hope that I will yeah. continue to make— music and i i think that um even
2: you, when it's just like we're just making tiktoks for I people mean, yeah, like exactly. in 30 years oh, god <laughs> i know
0: that's the thing it's just like i i guess i'm going to be on that train too <laughs> yeah. so just like everybody else someday but um no, i think about i mean like i've said this in another interview recently but i think about there's like a few years ago Brian wilson made this album where he's just basically talking about like being old mm-hmm. and i love that so much yeah. like i want i want that i want like to find inspiration because people will connect with that you know and even young people will like hear that and 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 it'll open their minds to that experience and and to what to anticipate in that and just I don't know I just think it's really beautiful and I so yeah I I um I feel like with other artists and 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 how I feel about their trajectories and things like that um I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't really thought too much about that, but I do—like, what you're saying about Nick Cave, I really feel— Because, like, like, I, I think when I was younger,
2: it. I romanticized, like, you know, oh, yeah. looking at, like, pictures of st- the Stones making Exile, and you're just like, fuck, yeah, that was incredible. It. That's, you know it. what I mean? Like, as if, <laughs> as if that was an end point. Yeah. To
1: asp- first of all, to aspire to, which is dark. Yeah, it's but, a, very dark. Yeah. yeah. But so also, like, like, that's everything they had to say or do. Clearly, that's not the case. But I think it's interesting to think about it in terms of longer careers how limiting it would be to only be able to share one part of yourself. Right. Limiting and potentially worse, punishing. I mean, it can be a gilded cage, I guess, to Mm -hmm. be the sad person for someone or the angry or whatever, to be limited to one emotion, but to be be able to find a relationship with your art and then ultimately your audience where you can be the fullness of yourself, I feel like would be the goal and potentially the most sustainable version of it.
0: Totally. and I, I think that, like, you know, with my earlier albums, I was really sort of starting to find myself writing myself into a little bit of a corner and sort of being pigeonholed as like a sad artist. Like that's the emotion. That's the thing that people sort of associate with me. and i I feel like without in the storm, I was I was sort of trying to break out of that a little bit and sort of, that, that album felt very angry, and then with this one, I feel like I'm getting closer to what you're saying, sort of being able to share, like, the full spectrum of... <laughs> it,
1: no, but it's interesting to hear you say that, because that's absolutely something that um, music journalists do, and I don't mean that maliciously, we did it too, or just the culture in general, which is put people into the most extreme box so you can understand them. So an yeah. album is... The drug album or the breakup album or whatever. The sobriety and,
0: album, yeah. And, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. The sobriety right. album. That, and that's what this is, uh-huh. right? And oh, yeah. Uh, and or similarly, like, you are a sad artist or a this artist or yeah. whatever. And none of that has anything to do with, because this has never been really part of the conversation, and it's not as romantic or sexy or pictures of the stones, you know, strung out in, in yeah. France, right. <laughs> to be like, this is the album where I wanted to push myself and write songs on the piano. Or this is the album where I wanted the sound to be this, because— and I and and I I often wonder about how your perspective on it from the other side of the ball, which is none of the people who okay, very very few of the people. <laughs> okay, I'll use I statements. I have no idea how to make a record. You know, I don't. I I could I could play a D chord and that's about it. And so the work that you do and what you're thinking about often is not what you end up talking about, right? Because what you end up talking about is the feel of the product, <laughs> yeah. right, right, In a right. very different way, yeah. which which is, I think is kind of my long-winded way of saying the same thing that we were saying a moment ago about being limited to one one talking point
0: yeah
2: yeah, I mean, I imagine, like, like no, I mean, I not to interrupt, I imagine you think you think of this record, and you think about, like, where you recorded it, and, like, what happened on the Wednesday when you were in there, and then, like, it gets processed out in the world, and people are like, let's talk about the emotional state of mind from, like, a 19-month period that <laughs> right. somehow, like, su- like, was summarized in these 12 songs. <laughs> not just that whatever. answer
0: for it. Yeah, right. right. Well, that's—the thing about that that I have to say that I've really been feeling about that particular thing is that this is my fifth album, so mm-hmm. I've been around the block a few <laughs> times, and— uh, <laughs> I was one thousand percent anticipating that experience. I knew, okay, in order to tell this story, I have to talk about my sobriety, and I'm okay with that. I like, I, I feel like it. It is a really personal thing. It is a really uh, fragile thing, and a lot of people don't like to talk about it. And I feel like I'm, I'm okay with it because it's part of the story and it also I know when I was really struggling that was something that that helped me was to to know that oh this person I like or that I look up to or whatever was able to get sober and that made me feel like I could probably do it too so that's one thing but I think you know I I just knew I mean I knew that I was gonna have to talk about it and then I was gonna that people I know how music writers work also yeah. um, I, once again like I'm not a music writer so I it is the other very much so the other side of the ball but i know enough to know that music writers like to have a story Ask and they a like story. it they like to i i knew that my record was going to go from this kind of vast complicated you know, array of of emotions and experiences and, you know, from making it to what the songs were about and how different the songs are from each other. I knew it was going to sort of tighten up into this like package. Yeah, Yeah. be boiled down. Exactly.
1: So not to put you on the other side of the ball, with all caveats (laughs) for humility as required for you. What do you like about this record so much? Because we love it and we'll talk about it happily. But What's exciting is just even as you're talking about the making of it, like, and this is an audio-only format, so we'll describe <laughs> it, but you seem really happy. And yeah. you seem excited about it. And so I want what, what, what makes you excited and happy about this record? What are the moments, songs, the whole thing that, that ring out in your ears while you're talking about it?
0: Well, I think one thing is that I've always—maybe um, it's coming from punk and DIY mm-hmm. or whatever, but I feel like I've always been very quick to compromise on— Creative stuff and sort of the—I feel like the older you get and the longer you've been doing it, like, you sort of slowly chip away at that and get clearer and clearer on your vision and sort of more and more committed to that. And I think this is the first record where I got—like, I like I in every single avenue, I really kind of hit the bullseye of what I was aiming to do, and I did that without any struggle. Like, I think mm-hmm. I, I, I had the time and the space I needed to really put the correct people in the room— along every single part of the journey and that just led to really really good results so i think like basically it's the closest i've ever come to really nailing what i was trying to do yeah Um, so i think that's why i'm just like when it comes to the artwork and it comes to the you know the studio we recorded in and like the producer that's that was so big my my you know, main collaborator on the album was Brad Cook, and he's, like, one of my dearest friends and truly just, like, my soulmate as far as producers go. Just, we really hit it off and and did so much cool stuff together, and um, all of that stuff, just, I feel like every single box was ticked.
2: And you guys recorded in West Texas?
0: Yeah, Yeah. we started it there, um, but it's interesting. Like, I really worked with the band and with Brad on um, the demos and stuff, Mm -hmm. so I feel like we were all together and— Durham for a while, and then we Mm -hmm. went to Texas, and then Brad and I went to upstate New York for a while to finish the album and to, like, kind of do all the vocals and all that stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was actually kind of a bit of a drawn-out process making the record. Yeah.
1: And when it's time, and it is time now to go out and play these songs, (laughs) does it feel like a new version of the band and you? Because, obviously, as you were saying, you you made a very loud record last time, and then Mm -hmm. you had this sort of interregnum with different collaborators and sort of helped you find a new focus. What is this new new version of you live feeling like? How what how is it different?
0: Well, I haven't done it yet. So it's hard to <laughs> say, but, but I by the time I, this drops, it, yeah, totally I will. Be <laughs> done
1: great. Done great stuff.
0: Um It's gonna be cool. I mean, it's interesting because to me, I'm so excited about it and I'm like, this is the best the band's ever gonna yeah. be, you know? Um but I have no idea what other people are gonna yeah. think about it, you know? Just it's like a total taste thing. But yeah, I mean it's it's going to be different than the last band it's it's Bonnie Dune so they're going to come with me yeah. on the road and and be my backing band and this this woman Jackie Warren who's in a band called Major Murphy she's also going to be in the band and um it's quieter it's kind of more americana it's more sort of country sounding it's new interpretations of the old songs mm-hmm. so they're not going to sound exactly like they do on the record um but I just I think it's going to be powerful. I think that like we all are in such like musical love with each other and yeah. I think that it's really people are going to really feel a very positive energy off of the band.
1: S- since we're we're calling bullshit on a lot of music critic stuff, I I, I will say <laughs> that I the, the word I kept coming back to and listening to it and I kept wanting to use is this just sounds to me like a great American record. And usually American <laughs> is the adjective people who live in cities use to describe places that they haven't been or don't know what they feel like. <laughs> right. But it, truly in the sense that like there's a, uh, you know, a, a tension and energy and a... Um, you know, a uh, claustrophobia that can come from living in cities and city yeah. city records. And this just feels wide open, both creatively and musically. And it's just a phenomenal album. We're thank so excited you. to have gotten to hear it early. And hopefully now our listeners will be able to hear it too. Awesome. Um, thank you. Stay hydrated. Yeah. I, hey, I will. I'm, I'm not worried. It's, it's actually <laughs> you know Chris that I I'm a little worried yeah. about.
0: But uh, Thank you so much for coming please. Come back anytime. Thank you, guys.